Well, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to slow things down a bit from the pace that we've been traveling through Matthew's gospel. We're just going to look at one chapter this morning, Matthew chapter 18. Now, a number of scholars note that this chapter has a lot to do with the church, and that is true. Yet it's my sense that Matthew doesn't allow us as readers to take our eyes off of Jesus, even in this chapter. Well, this chapter does have a lot to do with the life of the local church. What is motivating Jesus' instruction concerning the church is his personal love for the church. So if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 18, where we have the privilege of considering the fullness of Jesus' love for his people. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find uh, the passage on page 823. 823. Now the author of this gospel, Matthew, uh, was a follower of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. And as we considered last week, Matthew, because he was concerned to see his readers' response to Jesus Christ in faith, he brought the issue of Jesus' identity as the Messiah front and center. Over and over again, Jesus taught his disciples that he would be the kind of Messiah who would suffer and die, and yet, on the third day, rise. This is what Jesus has been revealing to his disciples. And the question that Matthew has been posing to us in his gospel is this. How will I respond to Jesus' self-revelation? Will I reject him? Or will I receive him as my Savior and Lord? And this morning, as we study Matthew 18, we'll learn how we are to receive Jesus. We're to receive him like little children, he says. We'll also consider what it means to continue to live as God's children. We were loved and forgiven by God so that we too might love his children, protect them, and forgive them. In doing so, We reflect God's generous and gracious character to one another. We reflect the very character of Jesus Christ himself. So, if I had to summarize what Matthew 18 was all about in one sentence, it would be this. Those who have been called children of God, receive, protect, pursue, and forgive the children of God. Those who have been called children of God, receive, protect, Pursue and forgive the children of God. In fact, those points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon, which you should find, uh, should be able to find there in your bulletins. Jesus loves those who come to him in faith like a little child. So let's begin by considering our first point. Jesus loves little children. Jesus loves little children. And in many ways, this point shapes all of the others that are going to follow. Because throughout the rest of Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching us about his children, those who come to him in faith, and how they are to live together in the family of God. So read Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 5 with me. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5. And just so you know, I'm going to be ignoring many of those headings that you guys have there in your your Bibles. Uh, Those are just put in there by the Bible editors to help you kind of understand what that section is generally about. Uh, But often uh, they kind of hide how they're connected together. So, hope that's helpful. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, 
Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Matthew's phrase there that begins our our passage at that time is is a bit challenging. But I think what Matthew is referring to is that general time in Jesus' ministry. I think that will be helped to understand what he means by that phrase, kind of glancing backwards actually in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 21, 16 verse 21, Matthew announced a major transition in Jesus' ministry. He said, from that time on, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day rise. The transition that takes place is Jesus regularly announcing that he will humble himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And on multiple occasions, Jesus told his disciples that he must suffer and die. And Jesus will continue to predict his death and resurrection as Matthew's gospel unfolds. So at that time in his ministry, Jesus' disciples, especially Peter, as you may remember, did not understand what Jesus was saying. Peter and the disciples recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't fully recognize what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. Not only must Jesus be the kind of Messiah who would humble himself and be crucified on a cross, but his disciples must recognize that in order to truly be his followers, they will have to follow in his path of suffering. That is what Jesus communicated in chapter 16, verse 24 to 28 of Matthew's gospel. Those who truly recognize Jesus and his messianic ministry recognize that their path is one of humility, suffering, and cross-bearing too. They would have to die to the passions of the flesh, die to the pursuit of worldly prominence, die to the path of self-exaltation. This is what Jesus was driving home to his disciples at that time in his ministry. But the disciples' question in verse 1 makes it clear that they, they don't quite get it yet, do they? They're interested in who will be the greatest. That is to say, who, who will occupy the highest place in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus makes clear that the way up is actually the way down. And we struggle with this today too. We want places like the disciples. We want places of prominence. We want recognition and pats on the back. We want power and prestige. Some of you uh, brothers in this congregation may recognize those peas from the book that we've been reading together uh, at the men's breakfasts. The truth is that the way up is the way down. Following Christ is not about our position in the world or in the church. There is no area of service that is too low for us. And if you think there is, then your view of yourself is too high. I think that um, my fellow elders are humble men. They need a a bit more humility, and they'll tell you that themselves. But the truth is, is that you need a bit more humility too. We all do. Uh, The brothers who serve as, as elders here are incredibly humble. They're willing to serve in nursery and wash dishes and do the most basic humble things to serve our church. They reflect the humility of Jesus, and I praise God for that. Jesus Christ, he came from heaven to earth to serve. He humbled himself for us, and we we humble ourselves to glorify him. 
Now, Jesus' disciples, they were concerned about who would be at the head of the pack in heaven. But more fundamentally, Jesus says that they needed to worry about getting into heaven in the first place. I don't know if you noticed that. They assumed that they were shoe-ins for the kingdom of heaven. But were they? After, After calling a child into their midst, Jesus says to his ambitious disciples, Truly I say to you, unless, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A change in their lives needed to take place. They needed to repent of pride and vainglory. Jesus says that they needed to turn and become like something they were not. Here they were, grown men, with a a small child in their midst, a small child who at that moment displayed far more humility than they did. What makes this call to childlike faith all the more striking is that in the first century, Children were thought to be insignificant members of society. Like a household servant, they could give nothing in return for any attention given to them. Children had no money, no resources, and no prestige placed upon them by the community. Whereas adults tend to assert themselves, boast about their triumphs, and confidently claim they can handle any situation in their own strength, small children are completely and utterly dependent. They are humble. They do what they are told by adults. Remember, there is a real-life example of humility right there in the disciples' presence. Jesus called a little child to come, and he came. A little child, a child not his own, heard Jesus' voice. He heard Jesus call him, and he obeyed. He listened to Jesus. The disciples needed to humble themselves like that little child. They needed to listen to Jesus, just as God the Father told them to In the transfiguration. Do you remember that? Jesus was transfigured and God said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listening is a mark of humility. Jesus' disciples need to recognize that Jesus was teaching them important truths about his mission. That they would need to humble themselves just as he had humbled himself. They would need to express their total dependence upon him for their salvation. But they would need to do something else too. Jesus' disciples would need to receive those who expressed this kind of humility. That is what the beginning of verse 5 is about. Jesus' disciples would need to receive those who listened to Jesus, who heard his call to come, humbled themselves like little children, and obeyed. Now sometimes it is important to state the obvious, so let me go ahead and do that now. Jesus is obviously not talking about literal little children. He's talking about true followers, disciples, who are humble like little children. And here is what needs to happen with them. They need to be received by fellow disciples. Why? Well, because when they are received, Jesus is received. Did you know that? You're not saved by receiving fellow disciples, but you are certainly showing that you are saved when you do receive them. Jesus' statement about receiving the humble is like receiving him reveals something of our our union with him. You know, Paul, we see an example of of this, Jesus' union with the church. Uh, We see it in Paul when he was called Saul. Remember Saul, he was running around persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9. And then Jesus confronts him and he says in Acts chapter 9 verse 4, Why are you persecuting, not the church, why are you persecuting me. 
See, Jesus, he identifies with his people. He is, he's united to them. And so to receive a humble fellow disciple is to receive the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself for us. Jesus is with us, in us, and for us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so our interactions with one another are significant. In, in receiving fellow disciples, we receive the Lord himself. What a privilege it is to warmly receive, welcome, and embrace fellow followers of Jesus Christ. Not only are we to uh, welcome those who have humbly followed Christ, but we're to do so in Christ's name, Jesus says, with the same affection, love, and care that he receives them. If Christ has lovingly received them, then so should we. Jesus loves the children, and so should we. You know, I'm, I'm excited that we as a congregation have the privilege of practically doing this later in our members meeting today. We have the privilege of receiving into our membership brothers and sisters in Christ. What a joy that is. How, how are you personally, individually, as a follower of Jesus Christ, doing in, in receiving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you, are you receiving them into your home and, and into your life? This idea of receiving God's children shows us that, that the church is, is not just a gathering together here on Sunday. It's also about scattering and living life together outside the walls of, of this building to the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, different parts of the rest of this chapter are going to make that abundantly clear. In fact, you can't even understand parts of Matthew 18 without understanding that there is an ongoing, vibrant relationship that exists between brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to continue to work on receiving one another. We need to spend time with one another, grab a cup of coffee, hear each other's testimonies, pray for one another. And we need to receive those who are not just like us. We need to receive and relate to those who have different needs and different struggles from us. After all, everyone Jesus loved, apart from the Father and the Spirit, were nothing like Him. Jesus loves those who are not like Him. He loved little children who were weak, and He gave them His strength. He loved little children who were unrighteous, and He gave them His righteousness. We are to love those whom Jesus loves and receive those whom Jesus receives. So we have a responsibility to receive those who give a humble and credible profession of faith in Jesus Christ. If Jesus loves the little children, then so should we. But we have another responsibility to them as well. Because Jesus loves the little children, we are to protect them. Jesus loves the children, loves the little children, so we protect them. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning. Read Matthew chapter 18, verses 6 to 10 now. Matthew 18, verses 6 to 10. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Comes, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye 
causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes, to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. We, as Christians, have a responsibility not to lead others into sin. I think that's what Jesus means in verse 6 when he says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, we believers, the Christian church, are not to lead others into sin. We are not to be the cause for the little ones of Jesus Christ to stumble in their discipleship. And what Jesus says in the second half of verse 6 is startling, isn't it? A death of drowning in the depths of the sea is to be preferred than to cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, there are things worse than dying. Do you see how much Jesus loves his people? Do you see how much the Father loves his people? He is watching over them with angels, as we learn from verse 10. Does this mean that each Christian has their own guardian angel? I don't know. But that's, that's not really the point, actually. The only thing that we're told is that these angels are watching God's little children. Not that they are preventing harm from coming to God's little children. It's our job to protect our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It is our job not to cause them to stumble in their discipleship. God wants to protect his children, and he wants you and me to protect them. We are the first earthly line of defense for the spiritual protection of God's children. So when you're you're speaking and interacting with your brothers or sisters in Christ, have you considered how your words and actions might help or hurt their faith in Christ? Do you you think in that way? Now, perhaps you think to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about that. Uh, I'm not going to tempt others to sin. My life doesn't have that kind of profound effect on other Christians. Well, brother and sister, Jesus seems to think that our words and deeds can have a profound effect on each other. Which is why Jesus calls believers to get serious about their own lives and their own pursuit of holiness there in verses 7 to 9. It's true that Jesus says, woe to the world, but he is clearly addressing his disciples. He warns them of their hands, their feet, And their eyes. He says, your hand, your foot, your eye. Yes, there are sins and temptations out there in the world which can lead God's people astray. But there are also dangers within each one of us which Satan can use to lead God's people astray. And so we need to cut them out of our lives. Not only for our own good and for our hope of making it safely home to heaven. But also for the good of our church. Jesus designed Christianity to be this way, to be connected and interconnected. He had followers, and he called them to follow him, which means they're supposed to follow him. You know, the Apostle Paul, he echoed this reality when he said to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Or as Paul told the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, that they ought, moral obligation, they ought to imitate him. Godly Christians are to be imitated for their imitation of Jesus. 
following is the pattern of Christianity. Now think about driving for a moment. Say you're following someone in the car in front of you. You're going to the same place, but you're following them because they know the way there. Have you ever been following someone who gets turned around and you have this awkward stop in the middle of the road and you've got to go back another way? They're lost. They've gotten turned around. And because you've been following them, now you're lost and turned around too. When you're following someone and they veer off the path, you veer off the path too. What happens when you veer off the path? Those who are following you veer off the path too. How many of us have seen another Christian fall into sin and it wreaks havoc on the life of his or her local church? Whether it be a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a deacon or an elder or a pastor, or just a well-thought-of member. Any single Christian, any single Christian's sin can cause a tidal wave of destruction within the life of the local church. And Jesus is saying to us, protect the little ones, protect the ones he loves, his disciples, by getting serious about your own personal holiness. So brothers and sisters, what, what do we need to cut out of our lives? In what ways do we need to pursue radical holiness for for the good of our own souls and the the protection of God's little ones? Do we need to take our iPads and cell phones and laptops and televisions down the Potomac River and throw them in? Do you need to end a questionable relationship that's teetering on the edge of disaster? Do you need to stop lying and shading the truth? Do you need to be more generous with your resources because you are tempted to greedily hoard them? Do you need to get biblical counseling because you're angry and selfish and out of control at times? Do you need to do any of those things or something else for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of this church? Do it then. Well did the Puritan minister John Owen say, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But based upon Jesus' words, Owen could have gone a step further, I think, and said, be killing sin or it will be killing you and your church. It is better for you to get these things out of your lives and make it safely home to heaven than for them to lead you astray and others along with you. Here's the thing. Um, I don't know about you, but I shudder at the thought of leading any of you astray. My own heart is wicked, and, and I'm in need of more grace, and, and you are too. My hope and my confidence in making it safely home to heaven, and in seeing each of you make it safely home to heaven, is not in my own strength or my own ability, but in our Heavenly Father, who so loves us that He will not, He will not let any of his little ones perish. He pursues us and calls us to pursue his people with him. This is the comfort that Jesus communicates to us in the next section that we want to consider together. Jesus loves the little children. He pursues them and so we pursue them too just as he has pursued us. Jesus loves little children so we pursue them. Read Matthew 18 Just verses 12 to 14 with me now. 
verses 12 to 14. Jesus said, what, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus, the, the good shepherd, as he identified himself in John's gospel, will pursue his sheep who stray and he will find them. All of those whom he has determined to save, he will save. He will not let his little ones perish. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 29, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, notice something about this parable here in Matthew's gospel. The sheep is responsible for straying. It's not like it just happened. He is the one who has gone astray. That may have taken, uh, taken place by following another person who has momentarily veered from following Christ, or, or sadly, they may have gone off on their own. Whatever the case may be, it is the sheep who has gone astray. But he has not gone unnoticed. Love that. For Jesus, he sets out to bring him back. And when he does bring this wandering sheep back through Holy Spirit wrought repentance, God rejoices in their repentant return. And if God rejoices at their return, then so should we. This parable should naturally raise a question in our minds. Practically speaking, how, how does God pursue his sheep who stray? He certainly pursues his people by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But he also pursues sheep who stray through ordinary means, through ordinary believers. God pursues sheep who stray through the ministry of believers in the local church. Look at the personal pursuit that occurs in the life of the local church in verses 15 to 20. Read verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now many of you may remember that we studied and discussed these verses last week in the discipleship hour. And as we think about these verses, I, I hope to kind of jog your memory, some of your memories from that study a little bit. In verse 15, Jesus points out that a sheep has strayed. They've strayed by sinning against a fellow brother in Christ. And in many ways, this is hardly surprising. We are a church full of sinners, and we are bound to sin against one another. 
As sheep, we are going to bump into one another and step on each other. And sadly, sometimes we might even bite each other. We shouldn't, but we do. That we sin is not surprising. And what Jesus calls us to do in response to sin is not surprising either, even though it is one of the most difficult things to do here on earth. Jesus tells us to pursue our brother. Yes, to pursue the brother who has hurt us, offended us, and sinned against us. We are to go to him personally in private and show him his faults. We are to show him what he has done wrong. And we don't, we don't show him his fault in kind of a general kind of way. We don't, we don't go up to our brother and say, you know, Carl, I just have this sense that you've kind of been mean to me. And uh, it's been really uncomfortable uh, for me to be around you. And you just you kind of don't care for me. What, what do you think Carl's first question would be to me? Mike, in what way? I, I, I'm, there's no Carl here, by the way. Not that I know of at least. So I'm not calling anybody out in particular. Uh, what, what would Carl's first question to me be? Mike, how have, how have I been mean to you? He's asking how, how particularly have I been mean to you? Give, give me an example if your brother has sinned against you, he has done so in a particular way, and that sin needs to be biblically identified by name, and it needs to be addressed. So, so the first question we need to ask is this. Has my brother really sinned against me? Has my brother really sinned against me in actuality? The, the second question that we need to ask is this. Is this an offense that I should overlook in love? First Peter 4, it reminds us that love covers over a multitude of sins. There really are some minor offenses that we ought to let go. When contemplating pursuing a brother or sister for their sin against you, remember to ask yourself, is this a sin that I should overlook in love? Is it some imperfection in a believer that in charity I should let pass? And on most occasions, I think, I think usually it will be. But sometimes, there, there are times when it is inescapably plain that our brother or sister has sinned against us and it is too serious to overlook. When that happens, Jesus commands us to go and speak with our brother. The matter should be discussed between you and him alone, Jesus says. Now, when our brother has sinned against us and we pursue him as God has pursued us, we do not do so as though we are sinless. Now, we remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. There, Jesus told us that before we go and take the speck out of our brother's eye, we are to take the log out of our own eye. You may actually need to confess your sin before addressing the sin of your brother. As we've been thinking about in the discipleship hour, when we actually do come to the point of addressing our brother's sin, we need to do so from God's word and show him why it is a sin. Not only this, but we need to remind him of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for our sins and was raised in victory over them so that we might turn from our sins and follow after him. We lovingly, gently, firmly, and clearly call our brother to turn from his sin. We can and perhaps we even should offer to practically help our brother leave this sin behind. There's another thing that is important to this pursuit of a stray sheep. And that is this. We should believe that this brother, because that's what Jesus calls him, is in fact a brother. We should believe that he is filled with the Spirit and that he will respond positively and gratefully and with repentance. Think about how that might change your 
approach to him. And think about what it is like to be confronted too. When you have been confronted in the past, it's humbling, isn't it? And that is precisely what Jesus said was necessary if his disciples are to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not our job to humiliate our brother or sister. And we should not humiliate them. And perhaps that's part of the reason that Jesus urged us to have this conversation in private. While we are not called to humiliate our brother, it is our job to humbly confess before them that we are sinners and to help them humble themselves before the Lord and confess that they have sinned too. Jesus gives us hope that our brother might indeed repent. He says at the end of verse 15 there, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If our brother does listen, if he does repent, we should rejoice We should rejoice because remember, God rejoices over his repentance. Now, we shouldn't throw a party and make the matter public, but it would be entirely appropriate to pray and to thank God for what he has done in the life of our brother or sister. Sadly, there will be times when those whom we confront do not repent. That is why Jesus gives the counsel he does in verses 16 and following. If the person whom you have confronted does not respond in repentance, if he has refused to listen to you, as Jesus says there, then you are to take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's, of course, a reference to the passage we heard earlier in the service. Again, notice that the matter is not widely broadcast, but handled discreetly. Remember, the goal is not to humiliate, but to call for humble repentance toward God and those who, whom he has offended. Depending on the nature and the seriousness of the sin, you might be wise to involve an elder of this church, an elder or two in the matter. Sadly, there are times when a small group of faithful and loving believers will be, re- will be refused and repentance will be rejected. When that pursuit fails, the matter, Jesus says, is to be brought to the church. Now, before we press on to think about what this means, what it means to tell it to the church, I want to pause and point out that Jesus does not say that those first two confrontations can only occur once. You may privately have several conversations with an individual before involving other church members. And that small group may meet with an individual several times before bringing the matter to the church. I don't think Jesus means to exclude multiple attempts to pursue a straying sheep. Well, what... What if this person does not repent after the appropriate steps have been taken? What if this person does not repent after two or three witnesses have confronted him? Jesus says that we are to tell it to the church. How? Should you, should you just stand up right now and let the whole assembly know that so-and-so has sinned? No. No. As, as my fellow elder and brother William Smith made clear last week in the discipleship hour... In light of the New Testament's teaching on the elders' responsibility to lead and shepherd the church, it's probably best for the elders to be the ones to actually present the matter to the church. And given the sensitive nature of the matter, uh, as well as Jesus' implicit instruction to keep the matter as private as possible, kind of at each stage along the way, it will be best to communicate to the church about this in a meeting that consists entirely of the church's members, rather than a meeting that also includes visitors. I think William gave us good teaching on that subject last week. This pursuit of this stray sheep, it has been patient, persistent, and gracious. 
But what if this person refuses to listen to the church as a whole? When the church calls him or her to repent. Read the last half of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What Jesus is saying here is that he is to be considered as someone who is not a part of the people of God. That's exactly what Matthew's Jewish audience would have understood when Jesus said that he was to be considered a Gentile. When Jesus says that the person is to be considered as one who is a tax collector, Jesus is saying that he is to be one who is considered as one who has betrayed the people of God. It's astonishing that Matthew, a tax collector himself, would record these words of Jesus. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. He went around collecting taxes from his fellow Jews. Undoubtedly, they would consider him a traitor for doing Rome's bidding. Jesus is saying that the church needs to consider this unrepentant person as someone who is not a part of the people of God, nor loyal to the people of God. And we get a glimpse of this when a word that Jesus used goes missing in verse 16. I wonder if you noticed that. The word brother goes missing. Jesus just starts calling the man he and him. Probably because the person is not acting like a sheep who hears the voice of Jesus and responds in humble repentance. Now what makes this matter all the weightier is what Jesus goes on to say in verses 18 to 20 there. Generally, when we Christians mention these verses and the idea of where two or three are gathered, we're thinking about how God is with us when we uh, gather for prayer or some other spiritual activity. But that's not what these verses are talking about. God is always with his people wherever they go and whatever number they are in. What Jesus is talking about here in verses 18 to 20 relates to the action the church is taking. And it relates back to what Jesus said to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, about the keys of the kingdom. You may recall Jesus entrusted to Peter and the apostolic band the power of the keys of the kingdom, the power and the authority to affirm and receive disciples in Jesus' name as well as to exclude those who are unrepentant. And what we're seeing here in Matthew 18 is that the church who rightly confess, the churches who rightly confess the faith of the apostles have the power, authority, and responsibility to receive in the little children that Jesus loves. We saw that in verse 5 when they receive them in Jesus' name. What we're seeing here in verses 18 to 20 is that churches who rightly confess the faith of the apostles have from God in heaven the power, authority, and responsibility to exclude from their fellowships those who continue on in disobedience and unrepentant sin. The unrepentant and wayward sinner have not, like little children, listened to the voice of Jesus when the church called them to repent. This practice is known as excommunication. Excommunication is removing a person from membership in the church for unrepentant sin and the lack of a credible profession of faith. Their baptism is called into question. And this excommunication includes barring a person from the table of the Lord. Now, we have only considered the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this sensitive and weighty subject. And right now, 
What I want to do is point out a few resources and mention a few implications for our life together as a church. First, a few resources. Come to the Discipleship Hour at 9.30 next Sunday morning where William will finish up his series on church discipline. Ask him for his notes, probably not just for that class, but for the whole series. Um, ask him for his thoughts on this subject. Secondly, I want, to address your, I want to direct your attention to a small book in the book nook located in the vestibule. It looks like this. Uh, it's, it's by Jonathan Lehman. It's called Church Discipline, How the Church Protects the Name of Jesus. It's a great practical resource. You'll see it's small and uh, really readable. Uh, Jonathan, he, he walks through examples of when and how the church might need to practice discipline. Now, as I said a moment ago... Um, I want to mention a few implications for our life together as a church. You might be wondering, will we as a church do this? Would we actually discipline someone for membership? One pastor has rightly identified the attitude toward this kind of confrontation and church action. He said, quote, church discipline is as popular today in the church as public spanking is at the local supermarket. You just don't see it anymore or hear it practiced. No one talks about it. It seems somewhat scandalous. It seems unloving. Either last week or a couple of weeks ago, someone asked me if our church would practice church discipline. How would you answer that question? Would our church practice church discipline? I think um, when, I, when I was asked that question, if we practice church discipline, I think I answered something like this. If a member of our church were unrepentant in their sin, if they refuse the loving pursuit of the church, and I hope we would, does this disturb you? Does it anger you? Does it concern you? Do you think that this kind of action is unloving and unwise? If, if this idea is unsettling to you, let me, let me encourage you to come and talk with me or, or another elder in the church. In the meantime... Let me give you the essence of what I think this issue boils down to. It boils down to this. Will we as a church humble ourselves like little children and trust the wisdom of Jesus? Will we as a church humble ourselves like little children and trust the wisdom of Jesus? Or will we essentially say, you know what, Jesus? We know a better way of pursuing God's sheep. If we say that we are followers of Jesus, will, will we follow what he has commanded? Will we as a church trust Jesus like little children? Will we listen to Jesus and do what he says? This is the commission that we have received from our loving Lord. When practiced properly, church discipline is not a witch hunt. It is a pursuit of a straying sheep on God's behalf. And you... You, Christian, you want this church to practice this pursuit because one day you might stray. You want this church to love God and love you so much that should you fall into deep and serious sin, you want them to lovingly pursue you and rescue from the imminent danger that you are in. Jesus, he loves his children. He pursues them like a shepherd who pursues straying sheep. And he calls us to join him in that pursuit. In this chapter, Jesus calls us to do one more thing too. Jesus, 
loves the little children, and he forgives them when they stray. And so should we. This is the final point that we want to consider together this morning. Jesus loves the little children, so forgive them when they sin. Read Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35 with me. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he, when he, began, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that they had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that the debt, all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, look back up to the top of that parable. Notice how it begins. It begins with Peter asking the question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. I love Peter, don't you? He asks the questions that we want to ask, but we're kind of afraid to ask. Let's be honest. We're, we're all sinners, and we're, we're all just a little bit difficult to live with at times. And we want to know to what extent we have to put up with another brother or sister in Christ. How many times do we have to forgive them when they sin against us? You know, Peter, he might imagine going through this whole process that Jesus has laid out of confronting his brother. Imagine going through it again and again, and he has to keep forgiving him again and again when he repents. I love it, too, that Peter, he's the first to suggest a number. Let me just throw one out there. Let's see if this one will work, you know. Um, there, the, you know, in the, in the Jewish rabbinic literature, there was a certain number that people would have to forgive. It was three. So Peter, he thinks he's, he's like upping the ante. Let's just take it up to seven. You know, let's be really generous here. But look at Jesus' response. How, how many times do I forgive her? What do you think, Jesus? Seven? Is that, is that enough? Peter, think about this. Don't put a cap on it because then your brother will only have to forgive you that many times when you sin against him. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, says, No, Peter, 70 times seven. Now, some of your translations might say 77 times. My sense, that's actually probably a better translation of the Greek text. And if you're interested in why that is, then feel free to find me at the door after the service. 
Um, the point is, is that Jesus escalates the number of times that we are to forgive our brother far above the amount that Peter proposes. In fact, in effect, it's, a, it's kind of a limitless escalation. There's no sense in keeping track of the number of times you have to forgive your brother because whenever he repents, you ought to forgive him. This is how God deals with us. And that becomes evident in this parable, the parable of the wicked servant. The meaning of this parable is pretty transparent, isn't it? This, the servant owed the king 10,000 talents. That's an amount that is so high that the people in Jesus' hearing, they would have difficulty conceptualizing that amount. It's just kind of an infinite amount of debt this man owes. There's no way he could ever pay the king back. And in his grace and mercy, the king, the king forgave him of his debt. That's what's taken place with us, isn't it? We have sinned against the infinite and eternal God. Our sins have mounted up to the heavens. And in doing so, we are in danger of facing the infinite and eternal punishment for our sin. But when we humbly pray, Lord, forgive us our debts, God says yes in Jesus Christ. What is forgiveness, though? Forgiveness from God is His gracious pardon to those who repent and believe. In other words, when God forgives repentant sinners, He does not hold our trespasses and sins against us. And while the punishment that is due to our sin does not fall upon us, because God is just, it must fall upon someone. And it falls upon Jesus Christ. Our sin must be punished. And this is the good news of the Bible, that Jesus Christ humbled himself and took the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins, repent of them, and believe in him. God the Son left his throne in heaven to come to earth. He took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he lived a humble life of obedience to God the Father. And as God's perfect child, he did what the Father said. And yet at the right time, he died on the cross for sinners like you and me. Three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead and proved to us that our sins can be forgiven through him. Friend, let me encourage you to humble yourself now before Jesus. He calls you to come to him like a little child. To humble yourself by confessing that you have sinned and are in need of forgiveness. Jesus calls each one of us to turn from our sins and to come to him in faith. Believing that he lived and died and was raised from the grave for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And not just for one or two of our sins for all of them. Not in part, but the whole. They were nailed to the cross. And those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus, they do not bear the debt and the cost and the punishment for them anymore. Praise the Lord. So friend, come to Jesus Christ in faith today and be forgiven of your sins. Now the second half of this parable teaches us how we are to live in light of God's forgiveness of us. He has forgiven our debts and we are to forgive our debtors. God's people will sin against us and when they repent and ask for forgiveness, we should eagerly forgive. 
Where there is repentance, there should be forgiveness. In the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, we are to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. Does Jesus' parable end there, though? No. The, the king punishes the wicked servant for his lack of mercy. What Jesus says about the punishment of the wicked servant reminds me of what we read in James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Those who do not show mercy will not be shown mercy. There is no mercy in hell. The eternal wrath of God will not end in hell. Those who do not forgive will not be forgiven. Are you unwilling to forgive? Is there something that you are still holding against another brother or sister in Christ? Something that you're bitter about? Or should you be wary of bitterness? If you do not forgive, it may be that you do not understand God's forgiveness. If you do not forgive God's children, it may be that you are not God's child. What Jesus is saying is this. Those whom I have loved from all eternity, from before the foundation of the world, will also love. Those whom I have forgiven will also forgive. There is no such thing as a Christian, a person who has been forgiven, who does not also forgive. Do you know why that is? Because living inside of Christians is the spirit of Christ. The spirit of the one who has infinite love and forgiveness for his people. And this is where I want to conclude. As we've worked our way through Matthew 18 this morning, we've seen that Jesus sets his love upon those who humble themselves and trust him like little children. We've seen Jesus' love for his children as he calls brothers and sisters in Christ to receive one another, to, to look out for one another, to protect one another, to pursue one another, and to forgive one another. We love because he first loved us. In the words of Thomas Manton, may God give us the grace to return what we ourselves have received, love and forgiveness from God. We've been forgiven to forgive and display his glorious character. Let's pray together.